Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Last week, we heard from Pastor Chris as he closed up on Chapter 3 of the Book of Ephesians. This week, we're going to hear from Pastor Chris as we start in on Chapter 4, going through verses 1 through 7. Now, with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. It's his first Roman imprisonment, and there he is in a dungeon. Bruises on his ankles, bruises under his wrists from the shackles and the chains as he's given up his liberty for the furtherance of the gospel. There the apostle awaiting his death in a very dark and low place thinks of something very high. And it's there, somehow, he gets into possession of some parchment papers, and he writes three letters. First letter to a slave master named Philemon. Second letter to the church at Colossae, also known as the Book of Colossians. Then he writes a third letter. And that letter was to the book of, or to the church at Ephesus, what we know as the Book of Ephesians. Paul, writing as a prisoner in Rome, who has no freedom and is unable to walk away, begins to write to us this morning about how the Christian ought to walk. Not physically, but spiritually. And so the book of Ephesians takes a very big turn from now on to the end of the book. We go from what God has done for us to then what we ought to do for God. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to take verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And the whole point of the next three months is how to walk a worthy life how to have a worthy walk as a Christian. It's not about talking about it. It's all about being about it. And so Paul tells us now, as Christians, how we are to walk. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So Paul's in prison. He's actually going to get out of this first sentence. He's going to be released from Rome, and then Paul's going to do another missionary journey. He's going to get arrested again in Jerusalem. He's going to be sent to Rome one final time, and it's there that he will be beheaded for the gospel. But in this particular imprisonment, he writes three letters. He gives them to a man named Tychius and another guy named uh, um, Amnesty. Um, um, what's the, the, uh, slave owner, the, the slave from Philemon? Um, Nemesis? That guy. See, nobody could do it. There's Onesimus. There we go. So he sends these three letters by these men's hands. One goes to the slave owner, Philemon, one to, uh, Colossae, and then the, uh, third and final one goes to Ephesus. And this is what Paul is begging you, the church. The word implore means I beg, I beseech, I'm on my knees pleading. 
I plead the church that you walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, this is very interesting because of the word that he uses. The Greek word worthy is the Greek word axios. And we get our English word axiom, which means something that has what? Is of what? Equal weight. That's what an axiom is. Something that has equal weight. So what is Paul saying? Walk worthy of the call that you've been called. In other words, balance the scales. What does he mean? Well, chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three, look at what God has done for you. And so God has taken this treasure and he's dumped it on the scale. And so what happens to a scale when all the weight is on one side? It goes, boom, you tip the scales completely in one direction. Paul is saying, walk in a manner, live your life in a way that begins to even the scales back out. Does it mean that we earn salvation? No. Does it mean that we can ever get to the place where God owes us? Absolutely not. But what it is, it's a life that's dedicated to giving back to God. Remember, it's all about the call. What's the picture? Remember chapter one? What is the picture that we've been talking about? Who were we? We were sinners, right? And because we were sinners, who was our master? Sin. The Bible says we were all sold under the bondage and under the power of sin, our master. So the picture is you and I as orphan children on a slave market waiting to be bought, yet nobody wants us. The Bible says we are a people who have, who are not a people. We are a people who are far removed from God's promises. Therefore, we're a people that have no God. We're just wanderers. We're literally orphans enslaved to sin. And what is the wages of sin? What happens if a person slays on the, stays on the slave market and is never purchased? They're dead. The soul that sinneth shall surely die. The one who is under sin's slave, slavery will die. The wages of sin is death. So where we are, orphans, estranged from God, enslaved to sin with nobody to purchase us, waiting on the chopping block for death. Theologically, that's where every human being is. We're on the highway to hell, waiting for the inevitable day we take our last breath. But the Bible says God called you with a special calling. And the idea is he went to the slave market. He looked at all the peoples of the world and he sovereignly chose you because you're tall, good looking, handsome, smart, witty, capable, none of that. Because of his own grace and his own love towards you. Because the Bible said he foreloved you before the foundations of the earth. So God chose you, but the slave owner, sin, says, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh. You're not going to have these souls. You're not going to have my slaves that I worked so hard to keep enslaved. It comes with a very hefty price. So sin says the only way, the ransom price for these souls is a perfect life. It's a, a lamb, the lamb of God, without without sin, without blemish, without any wrong. The, the wages for releasal is perfection. 
So somebody has to come along and live the perfect life in order to pay the ransom. So God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So God called you and then the son sacrificed for you, paying the ransom price so that shackles can be taken off and you can be set free. And that's what God has done. In the Roman times, you can be set free or you can be enslaved by the new master. The Bible says it is for freedom Christ has set you free. He didn't make you a slave of sin so that you can be his slave. He set you free so that you have the freedom of will to choose this day whom you will serve. And so we're free men and we can choose. Let's go back into the world, go back into the yoke of bondage. We can go back into the anxieties and the stresses and, and all the things that hold us down. Or we can choose today to be with Jesus, to abide in the Lord, to be faithful to him. So then the question comes, how does God do it? How does God take orphan people who were not his, who were enslaved to sin, seal them with the spirit, free them from his son, choose them sovereignly? Paul then takes chapters two and three to explain it. It's through the mystery of Christ, which is also known as the what? What is the mystery of Christ? We spent 60 minutes on it two weeks ago. The mystery of Christ is what? The church, there you go, Sergio. The church, even with the mask, I heard it. The church, the mystery of Christ is the church. How does God make a people that's not his people? How does God uh, keep his righteousness, but yet forgive sinners? How does God stay holy and yet gracious and loving? The gospel. How does God unite people that are not his by bringing them into the gospel through faith? Through Abraham's loins so that you and I are now inheritors of all that God has promised through his covenant promise, Abraham. And so you and I have not only been set free, we have not only been given the choice to serve, to serve whom we choose to serve, but then we've also been adopted into God's family through the institution of the church. So now all that God owns is legally in your possession. And Paul is saying, look at the scales and look what God has done for you and look out how they are now. Now, in response to that, walk a worthy life and give your life back so that they start to be a little bit more balanced. Paul or John says it this way. We love him because what? It's a responsive love. It's not a love that God says, you must do it. It's a love that says we get to do it. It's an incredible privilege. And love goes so much further than fear. And so God has given us the free will to choose him and to follow and walk in love. So Paul says, I implore you to walk worthy. Now we're going to spend three months to look over four strides. There are four strides in this worthy walk or four major steps that the Christian takes to walk a worthy life. Step number one is we are called to walk in solidarity. We are called to walk, in other words, in unity, togetherness, or oneness. So we're going to look this week and in two weeks at our walk of solidarity. 
The next walk for the church and for the Christian is the walk of sensibility. Walk a sensible life. What does that mean? Number one, it means rejecting the world's philosophies, rejecting the futile mind of the unbeliever. It means having a totally different worldview than what the culture seeks to impose on you. If you look at verse 17 of chapter 4, he begins this idea of walking sensibly by not walking like the world. So I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So the idea is this, Christian, if you think like the world thinks and the world thinks anti-biblical, anti-gospel, anti-Christ principles, then you're thinking anti-Christ, anti-God, and anti-biblical principles. And so the Gentile or unbelieving mind and the Christian mind are to be like oil and water, light and darkness. They cannot mix. A sensible walk is a denial of the world's ways. Number two, it's a walk of love. We are called as children to walk in love. Then Paul says we are to walk in light, which is a, a sign of purity. And then we are to walk as wise men and not fools. Bless you. So step number one, we walk in what? I'm going to say this every week for three months, and we will get this. We're going to walk number one, how? In solidarity, unified. Then the next big step is sensible. Rejecting the world's philosophies, treating each other with love, living lives of purity, living a life of godly wisdom. Then the third thing, we walk submissively. And we get into chapter five, and there are three arenas in which we are to be very submissive. Submissive in the marriage institution, submissive in the family institution, parent children, and then submissive in the employment institution, employer-employee relations. And then lastly, chapter six, we are to walk in strength, putting on the full armor of God, walking in the full power of God's Holy Spirit. So we walk together, we walk sensibly, we walk um, submissively, and lastly, we walk in strength. And that is how we tip the scales. That's how we give back to the Lord who has given us everything. So let's look at the, the first one, which is principle number one, which is walk what? In solidarity, walk together with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Verse three, here's the command, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Here's our command, be diligent to do what? Preserve the, it's on the board, right there. Preserve the what? Unity. The whole point is walk together, Paul is saying, which is trippy. The Holy Spirit wrote the scripture. And of all things the Holy Spirit could have started on, the foundational thing in which the church is to be built on, in which the church is to be known for, in which the church is to practice immediately, is unity. I thought love, 
for sure, right? I thought love was, it's unity. Why is it unity? Because every man-made institution that has ever been created on planet Earth has failed. I read a statistic. Do you know how many peace treaties have been broken in world history? All of them. Every treaty in world history has been broken at one point, which tells you what? Institutions of men fail. Why? Because their founder fails and dies. You know, either they fail or they die and they leave the scene. And institutions are run by human beings. And human beings who do not have God tend to be very messy. And so when messy people rub elbows with messy people, a whole lot of mess starts going around. So if you think about it, the governments of the world, how powerful Rome was, and that institution fell. How powerful Greece was, and that institution fell. You look at at corporations like the uh, East Indian Trading Company. They were the largest corporation in world history. They spanned the entire globe, and they thrusted forth globalization before anyone. They are what brought the United Kingdom their great wealth and made them a superpower. The East Indian Trading Company was too big to fail, and yet they have. Every human institution fails. And it fails primarily because of discord, because there's a lack of harmony. There's disunity. There's fractions. There's fighting. There's splintering. There's separating. And so the church is called to be harmonious as a testimony to the world that this is a supernatural institution. Its founder has, is, is, has been dead and is alive today. So the founder doesn't die and just fall off the map. He continues forever. And its people, although messy, have been redeemed. And so now chapters three, four, five, and six is all about how not to be a messy Christian and how to be clean and walk worthy for in the, uh, the calling in which you have. So we are called to be diligent to preserve unity. The word diligent is two words. It means um, work hard, and it has another meaning of do it quickly. So it's saying work very hard at being diligent at preserving unity and work at it right away. Do it in a hurry. And so we are to be diligent in preserving unity of the Spirit. Is preserving creating? This is something that when I read this, it really struck me. Is preserving creating? When when the Bible says preserve unity, what is it insinuating? It's already there. Now think of it from our culture. In America now, 2020, 2021, there is this thrust upon us to be unified. From every angle, they're doing the best they possibly can to unify people by clowning them and canceling them. And so this big, you know, campaign to bring everybody equal and have equal outcome and equal opportunity and all the rest, this massive campaign for unity is doing nothing but dividing people more. And it's because human nature cannot be changed through simple campaigns. It's transformed through God himself. So when we come to the church, we must be diligent to preserve the unity. It's not our job to create it because you and I can't. There's too many differences. 
too many skin color differences, age differences, uh, educational differences, financial differences between all of us. There's not very much in common if we all sat down, you know, as to our lives and our own personal experiences and possibly even desires. The great connection, the great unifier to it all is God himself. It's the unity of the whom? Spirit. It's the Spirit's unity. We do not create unity like the world is trying and failing at. We simply preserve it. And we'll see why verses four through six, because the church is to be unified. So we are to work hard and quick at preserving the unity. And how do we do that at the end of verse three? Being diligent to preserve the spirit of unity, how? Through the bond of peace. The Greek word bond, this is so cool, is the, the Greek or the English word belt. We preserve the unity in the church by putting on the belt of peace. Now think of the church. Christ is the head and what are we? The body. So what does the body do with a belt? It puts it around its loins. It puts it around its waist. It holds everything up and it keeps everything together. And that's the idea of peace within the church. If you have a peaceable church and you have peaceful members, you're going to have a church that is full of unity. And so the church is held together by peace. It reminds me of a, a fourth century monk. His name was Telemachus. Don't don't, don't name your kids that. <laughs> but that was his name. And he was praying in his monastery and he felt God tell him to go to Rome. And so he told all the other monks in the monastery, he packed up all his stuff in a, in a silk uh, or in a, in a rag and, and he took off. As he gets to Rome, he hears tons and tons of cheering and, and people screaming and yelling. And he realizes that it's coming from the Colosseum. And as he gets close to the Colosseum, he realizes that gladiators are at war. They're fighting one another for sport. And Telemachus, he says, how can this be? For 300 years, the Christ has risen and men are still cheering on sport for the shedding of blood. So Telemachus, true story, makes his way into the Colosseum. And there, two soldiers hailing themselves to Caesar. He gets down into the pit, standing between them, and he says these words, in Christ's name forbade. And the, the crowd, 80,000 strong, stood to their feet, and they began to chant, run him through, run him through. So one of the gladiators pulls out his sword, turns it, takes the handle, and slams the handle right into the monk's stomach, dropping him to his knees. He's gasping, he's breathing, and he looks up towards Caesar and he says these words, in Christ's name forbade. 80,000 stand to their feet again and they begin to cheer. Run him through, run him through. Telemachus stands to his feet and this time the gladiator turns the sword back around and thrusts the blade fully into his gut the sword going in one end and out the other. The gladiator pulls the sword out, puddles of blood start streaming. Telemachus falls face first in his own pool of blood. His very last words as he gets to his knees, he looks towards Caesar and he screams, Christ, 
in Christ's name forbade. And then Telemachus fell down to the ground, took his last and was dead. The crowd of 80,000, true story. They all left the stadium in complete silence. And that was the very last day the Colosseum ever held a gladiator fight. It was through Telemachus' effort to be a peacekeeper. It was through his effort to maintain the bond of peace that life is saved. Now, I, I want to say that for this reason. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17, verse 20. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying over his apostles. There's 11 now, and he's praying for them. And then Jesus' prayer goes off of them and goes directly to you. This is to the Christian who would believe because of the apostles' words. And Jesus prays these words for you, church. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that's you, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, what's the reason for unity in the church? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Paul says the step number one for the church is to be unified. The way that the church is unified is every member is a peacemaker. Every member's a peacemaker. And what happens when you have a harmonious church? What does Jesus say? It's for the reason that the world may believe that you sent me. So what's the purpose of unity in the church? Maintain peace for the purpose of what? If every institution is faulting and flailing and splintering and the church of Jesus Christ, the true and redeemed church is harmonious, Jesus says that's what? It's a testament. It's a witness to the world for what purpose? So that the world may do what? Believe. Unity in the church is for the advancement of the gospel. See, when you hear people saying all Christians do is they fight, all Christians do are they're a bunch of hypocrites, all Christians do is, uh, you know, they splinter and they start their own churches and there's like 700 different churches, there's a complete lack of unity. When people see that, they wrongly refute the source of it. But when people see a group of individuals who love each other and are unified together, that's a testimony to the world. What's the purpose of your life? What's the chief purpose of your life? To bring God glory. The Westminster Catechism had it right. The chief end of man is to bring God glory. Ephesians 2.10 tells us how to bring God glory. To walk in the good works which God has given us beforehand. How do we bring God glory within the church in this first step? By being peacemakers so that we could evangelize the world through our relationship with each other. Does that make sense? It's all about the glory of God. So your drama with somebody else in the church 
isn't just affecting you. It affects the message of our gospel. It affects everything. It's all about how we are living it out. And so God says we are called to unity. We are to be diligent to preserve that unity through being peacemakers. So the obvious question is, how then are we to be peacemakers? Does anybody know where the answer lies? Yeah, but does anybody know what verse the answer lies? Verse 2. Let's look at verse 2. You have been called, and then verse 3 is the goal of ultimately being peacemakers. How then are we to be peacemakers? With all humility, gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. First one is, and it's the Greek word, total humility. Not just humility, not just humility in some areas, not just humility around some people, humility completely. James says, humble yourself before the Lord. And what does God do? He'll exalt you. You humble yourself, God will exalt you. Now think of this, this, the slave picture. You were redeemed from the market. And now you have a choice. We as Christians, we choose to abide with Christ. And the Bible calls us bond servants. A bond servant is a slave who has been freed, who willingly stays with the master. Now, what is the main characteristic of a bond servant? What do you think the main characteristic of any servant or slave should be? Humility, right? You're constantly on your knees lifting up. You're constantly serving. You're constantly putting other people even above yourself. That's the very epitome of humility. And who is the best illustration of humility? Jesus himself. For Christ himself did not think it robbery to be stripped of all his glory to become a man. Not only a man, but a man who was despised and a man who was rejected. And yet the Bible says Christ humbled himself, even to death, death by a cross. Humility is the greatest asset and characteristic, which ultimately leads to love that the Christian has. It's a servant's heart attitude. Jesus says, if you want to be master, what do you do? You be the servant of all. If we want to honor the Lord, it begins with humility. Humility deflects glory. If you could think of it like that, if all your life is about giving God glory, humility is a heart characteristic that deflects glory because humility really sees you for who you are. What's the antonym to humility? Pride. What does pride do with glory? Takes it. Humility deflects, pride takes. Pride says, look what these hands have built. Pride says, look how strong I am. Pride says, look how great I am. Did you know this word humility in, in the Greek was never found in classical Greek? It was never written by the Stoics and the great Greek philosophers in Kone Greek. This word didn't exist before Christianity. And the reason is because Rome and the Greeks they worshipped what were known as the double-souled men. And these were men who were powerful, who had strength, 
who were aggressive, who were warriors, who took things by might. That is who the Romans and the Greeks idolized. Power, authority, people of war, people of aggression. Here comes Christianity. All these historians are saying these people are weird. They eat and drink some guy's blood. They hold each other's hand. They kiss and love each other, and they share all things in common. These Christians are weird, and they're a very humble people. And so this uh, term of humility or being enslaved or given to somebody else came through Christianity. It's a mark of being a Christian because Jesus exemplifies humility. So we are called to be peacemakers. Step number one is by being a humble person. It says, God knows better than me, whereas pride says, I know better than God. So we live a life of humility. Number two, we live a life of gentleness. And it's the the word meekness. So what does meek mean? Exactly. Greg hit it right out the park. It means to hold back even though you have the strength to do it. What meekness is, is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. We have a 700 horsepower car sitting out in the, in the parking lot and you get in there and it's revving and you're ready to go. All that power under the hood, but you drive the speed limit. That's meekness. That's having power, but having the strength to restrain yourself for the betterment of other people. Joseph was a great meek man. You remember him from the Old Testament? What was his great display of meekness in his life? He had one just great display right at the very end. I think it's like Genesis 51 or some 50. I'm talking about Potiphar Joseph, Egypt Joseph. Exactly. What is, what is meekness? Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Imagine your brothers throwing you in a pit to die. Then they take you out and they sell you to some Arab merchants and you're in a foreign land. You know Joseph's story. He gets to the top of the ladder. He gets knocked down. He gets to the top of the ladder. He gets knocked down. And then God put him at the very top. Second in command to Pharaoh himself. There's a massive famine. People are are dying of starvation. They're heading to Egypt because they know there's food. And there uh, Joseph is, the prince of Egypt. And he's standing before his brothers, the ones who enslaved him, who sold him, who wanted him harm. And Joseph shows this incredible display of meekness. He has the power to hang them all. He could have had, he could have told those Egyptian soldiers to burn them alive and nobody would have even batted an eyelid. But he said, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. And what did Joseph do? He blessed his brothers. He blessed those who wanted to harm him. He blessed those who wanted, you know, to take away from him. That is the ultimate display of meekness. Now in the church, we are called to be humble. That means I take Vince and I elevate him. That means I take Mike or I take Birdie and I elevate them in humility. And then I show great meekness. If they hurt me and I have the power to get revenge, I forego. I pass it. Vengeance is the Lord's, not mine. That's meekness. So we're called to be humble 
We're called to be meek. Look at the third one. This one's really cool. We are called to be or to have patience. Now, the Greek word is makrothumia. Macro means what? Great or big or large, big picture. Thumia is heat. Think of like a thermos. It's heat. So to be patient means someone who could tolerate, who can hold an immense amount of heat and not explode. And that's the idea of being a patient person. It's called long-suffering, or the Bible calls it enduring. It means that you are able to take it and take it and take it and take it and take it, and you might be bubbling up inside, you might be getting angry, you might be getting heated, but because of patience, it's able to simmer down and it's able to not blow out. That's why the Bible says the Gentiles or the unbelievers, they're known by their outbursts of wrath, their lack of patience within the flesh. You show me a person who doesn't have patience and I'll show you someone who's not walking with the Lord, right? It's as simple as that. Someone who is long suffering is someone who's walking close to the Lord. Someone who has outbursts of wrath is someone who's walking close to the flesh because it's it's natural and inherent for us to want to attack to want to protect, to want to defend, to want to to not take it, but to dish it out. God says, no, you've been born again. And so you are macrothumia. And there's two ways the Bible says we are to be called long-suffering. Number one is relationships with each other. First Thessalonians 5 says, be patient with all men. When it comes to our own individual relationships with each other, we have to show long-suffering. That means we, we don't, we don't take vengeance. We don't, you know, go tit for tat or an eye for an eye. That's why Jesus says, you have heard of old, you know, love your neighbor, you know, but, but hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, do good to those who want to do you wrong. That's the new way of living. The second way long suffering plays out is in your walk with God. Anybody here? Walk with the Lord. You might be walking with the Lord right now and you have no idea what his will is for your life. Like, you know, the general will of God, sanctification, to believe on Christ. You want, you understand what God's will is for your life theologically. But when it comes down to what is it in your life? What is it you, me as an individual? What is God's calling on my life? What does he want me to do? And when you know that, and you're walking in that path and nothing's happening. When you pastor a church for five years and you look around, and you say, what's going on, God? And, and you're saying, what's happening, Lord? And, and you're serving the Lord and you're being faithful and you're committed and, and you're just taking it and taking it and taking it. And then you're waiting and waiting and waiting. That's what the Bible says is a characteristic of a Christian. Is somebody who is in the will of God who hasn't seen the fruits of God's promise, who is long-suffering and just continues to plop along. And that's this idea of biblical patience, being patient with each other and be patient with life circumstance, knowing that God is in control. For example, Abram, what was his name changed to? Abraham. Abraham means father of many nations. 
And yet God promised Abraham at 75, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And his 76th birthday, nothing happens. And his 80th birthday, nothing happens. His 85th birthday, nothing happens. His 90th birthday, nothing happens. But God promised me. And then Romans 4 says, Abraham was patient with God, or he was long-suffering. It just meant he was able to walk the course that God intended him to walk faithfully. And that's what patience is. Remember Noah? Monique will remember this one from children's. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? How long, Monique? Yeah, your, your, your seven-year-old knows it. 120. 120 years it took Noah to build the ark. And get this, it never rained before. In the history of man, it never rained. And so here you guys got this guy building his huge boat, and he's preaching righteousness. He's preaching repentance. And he's saying this mysterious thing is going to happen, rain, and you are all going to die if you don't do something about it. And yet... 120 years goes by and he has zero fruits of his labor. And yet Noah was a man who was macrothumia. He was long suffering. And then Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, you know the story. Three times he asked the father, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, thy will be done. He was long suffering even to the cross. So we are to be humble which leads into meekness, which bleeds into long-suffering, which ultimately bleeds into the last point, showing tolerance for one another in love. And this is basically having an enduring love. What does love do? Covers what? If love covers a multitude of sins, okay, and our goal is unity, then the church should be doing what? loving one another. It starts with a a servant's heart. It starts with meekness, not getting back, but elevating others. It starts with patience, being able to endure, even though you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then it ends with loving your people next to you, loving the people in the church so much that even when they hurt you and offend you, it's okay. Because love covers a multitude of sin. So we are called to be peacemakers for the purpose of unity. And unity does what in the world? It is a what? A witness to the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are we peacemakers? Verse two. How are we peacemakers? Humility, meekness, patience, and loving. That is the what makes a peacemaker. And then we'll close with this, the origins of our peace. Why is it to be that the church of Christ has oneness? Because the church of Christ was established in oneness. Look at verse five and six. I'm sorry, verse four, five and six. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and and through all and in all. So number one, how many churches are there? Now, when we think of church, we think of local assembly, but there's one universal church. And Paul says there's one body. 
There's not many bodies. There aren't many churches. There is one church. That means a, a church who believes in the gospel and they're in Mongolia, they're one body and they're a part. The, the church in Nicaragua is a part. The church in Russia is a part. The church in England or the United States is a part of one body. There's only one of us. And it makes it difficult because when someone believes something different from us, it's like, no, you're wrong and I'm right. But the Bible calls us to be unified because there is one body. There is also one spirit. How many Holy Spirits are there? One. And how many Christians possess the Holy Spirit? Everyone. So in the church, the Holy, or you have the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us has the same spirit. The question becomes in our sanctification, does the spirit have you? That's the question. But theologically and positionally, we're all part of the same body and we all possess the exact same spirit. People think that I have a, a, a you know, a direct line to God. Like I just walk up and, and have a, uh, a one-on-one conversation with God the Father and he speaks back to me like you're hearing my voice. It doesn't happen that way. It's the, I'm in the same body that you're in. I have the same access that you have. I have the same spirit you have. We're all equal. That's the point. We have one body, one Holy Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. We were out in the slave market and God called us. And guess what? He called Greg in the exact same manner that he called Mike, that he called me, and that he called you. We were all called in the identical manner, in the same hope. So that deals with God, the Holy Spirit. Now we go to God, the Son, verse 5. One Lord. How many Lords do we have? How many Christ died on the cross for us? How many were buried and rose again and ascended to the Father? One. We have one Christ, and he's the same one that shed his blood for you and for me. His blood completely colorblind. We have one faith, and that's common faith. This is the faith that Jude says we are to contend for. There's one Christianity. There's not multiple Christianities. There's not many roads that lead to God. There's one. There's one faith, and we are a part of that faith. There is also one baptism. When you were baptized, were you baptized in Chris's name? Were you baptized in Peter's name? Were you baptized in Cephas's name or, or Apollos's name? You were baptized in God's name. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You may have been baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of your sin, but it's one baptism. You all were dipped and you all came out in the same manner for the same testimony. Then we move to God the Father. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Going back to chapter three, God called all people from all people groups to be his child. So think of it spiritually. We all have the same um, calling, the same Lord, the same church, the same spirit, the same fellowship. We're all completely equal in the spiritual realm. So when it comes to church, we look at people through the eyes of the spirit and not through the eyes of the flesh. And that's the mistake in our, in the church today is we look and we see diversity and we see all this stuff. And how are we going to unify them together? It has already been done. All we simply do is recognize that. And then we live according to it. 
So how do we live in, in unity? What's the one word? And it starts with a P and ends with East. Peace. All right. You guys, you guys, we're good. All right. Let's pray. Father, I just, uh, thank you, God, for your text. Um, it's, it's very powerful and it is, is very logical. And in your power, it's, it's, it's easy to do. It's not hard. Lord, you've called us to be diligent to preserve what you have already established. And so, God, it's, it's our responsibility as Christians to strive to be peacemakers for the purpose of unity, for a witness to the world, for ultimately the glory of God. And so, Father, we just lift this time to you. I pray, God, that we would take these things seriously. One of the main differences between Judas and Peter was pride. Judas thought he knew best, and Peter realized that God knew best. Father, would you give us a humble heart? Would you give us a a meek disposition? May you give us a patient spirit. And may you give us a loving life so that we can bring honor to your name. When Christians fight amongst themselves, when there are scandals in the church, it is so damaging to the testimony that the church of Jesus Christ is a supernatural organism, not a man-made institution. Father, help us to shed your light, to let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and glorify you. May we walk together in oneness. In Jesus' name, amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.